0: Welcome back to Not Alone, a podcast about faith and mental health. We are so glad you've tuned in.
1: Today we're going to talk about perfectionism, John Wesley's battle with the desire to be flawless, the ways in which we wrestle with the various impulses to be perfect day to day, and we'll also do a brief review of the movie Homeward Bound. Here are Michael, Lindsay, and Evan.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another wonderful episode of the Not Alone podcast. This is the podcast that explores faith, mental health, the gap between the two, what we can do to better take care of our souls, our bodies, our families, and our communities. And here in October 2020, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, three people who just wonder just exactly how they're going to hand out candy this year. I don't really know how we're going to do it. I I think maybe we like sanitize the candy and put it in like little sandwich bags and then write a note about how it's been like safely packaged with masks. But then I guess the parents would have no reason to trust us. We're already worried about people putting like thing nefarious things in children's candy anyways. That's like the urban legend that goes around. Right. So I don't even know how we're going to do it in
1: coronavirus. I like the candy shoot idea where that, you that one
2: does seem pretty incredible.
1: Drop it in. I think, I think that's the route I would go. If I were going to be handing out candy this Halloween, I would build a shoot just like for a, the sheer fun of it.
0: Do you remember those hot wheels tracks where like you would take the yeah, track and like put like it that. on top
1: of the counter? Yeah. And then it's, it's a long it, PVC pipe. And it just, it just kind of like, mm.
0: Maybe a bank pneumatic tube, like, oh, or you could like just drop it out of a window and then ma- play the sound of the tube because the sound and the feel of the air rushing, like the, <laughs> is so good. I that saw somebody
2: else show that they were gonna like hang them in little baggies from their tree outside. Oh, that's that's good. That's good.
0: yeah, might look creepy at night. Just things hanging from the
2: tree. But isn't that what Halloween is, is being kind of creepy?
0: I'll tell you what, if somebody wants to haunt my tree with candy, they can do that anytime.
2: My Halloween is really going to be me purchasing a bag of candy and just eating it myself. I mean, it is what it is this year. In 2020, trick-or-treating may not happen, and we might as well just help ourselves out and buy the bag of candy. And don't pretend like you're going to give it out to anybody else. Just take it yourself.
0: Is that what I've been doing every two days since March is just having my own personal private Halloween?
2: Have you seen that meme out there where it's like (laughs) all the way since March, we've already been wearing masks and eating candy nonstop. (laughs) (laughs) We've been celebrating Halloween this whole time.
0: That is so perfect.
2: It is Um, hard
0: to judge. It is really hard to judge. Well, everybody, I'm Evan DeYoung. I am here with two wonderful friends, Lindsay and Michael. I'll let them introduce themselves as we kind of jump into our episode. Hopefully, we can solve some problems for you related around uh, candy distribution issues.
2: Hey, everybody. It's Lindsay Geist. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a pastor in the United Methodist Church. I have a background of working with Individuals dealing with anxiety and depression and helping churches uh, teach mental health and navigate crises.
1: Hey, Michael McCord here. Good to see you all. Good to be with you today. And um, this year I will be dressed up like Hagrid because my family has chosen that we are all going to be Harry Potter characters. So I'm pretty excited about that. And when I'm not dressing up like Harry Potter characters, I work with college students and caring for their uh, their times while they're in school. So and and all the campus ministers and chaplains and people who support them. So glad to be mm-hmm. with you guys today and hope you can dress up for Halloween, too. Yes.
2: So so in our show notes today, because you mentioned what you are going as is Halloween. Can, I think we need a link with probably the picture of you dressed up. Um, oh, oh, it's yeah, going to be a, nice. Yeah. Clearly. That's what is it? Is your whole family going as the whole Hagrid. Harry Potter theme?
1: <laughs> Variations <Austin> of Hagrid. <laughs> and our neighbors. <laughs> We're all going as Hagrid.
2: <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> yeah, Hagrid. Little Hagrid.
1: Little Austin little Hagrid. is going to be Harry Potter. Ellie is going to be Hermione. Uh, Emily's going to be Madame Maxine, because isn't that... I think that's Hagrid's girlfriend, right? Is that right?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. And then our neighbors will be Dumbledore... McGonagall, Malfoy, and then I don't remember the other one. But the Austin's
0: going to be here Potter, but he has that blonde hair. He could have been a great Malfoy.
1: I know, but so the neighbor across the street also has blonde hair, and he'd already claimed Malfoy. So Austin is going to dye his hair.
0: Oh, wow. You got, I, like. I'm not surprised that you guys would go that far for Halloween costumes. You aren't really a half-measures family.
1: Last year, I was Sully, so, you know. Oh,
0: yeah that's great i'm going i'm doing a tandem costume with a friend um who is able to through their work get uh, a lot of rapid testing so they can just go to work and get covid tested so it's kind of a lot easier to hang out and have everybody over and that kind of stuff Um they are going as peter pan and i have a uh, spandex suit that's black and i'm going as peter pan's shadow <laughs> So okay. I,
2: what what nobody can see right now is that Michael's face is like I don't think I know you. He is immediately turning away from the screen and trying. I can't tell if you're trying not to laugh or judge I'm or judge him. Why? Just...
1: What's wrong with my costume? <laughs> oh goodness. Well, the my first my first thought is is you're perfect for Peter Pan because because you have embraced your childhood your whole life and i love that about you. It's one thing i appreciate yeah. about you.
0: But and i like to then, run from my problems, which is what the shadow it, does.
1: That's right. That's right exactly. <laughs> but then yes. then the image of you in a black spandex crossed my mind and i that's a you know.
0: Well, if i can be transparent, there have been some thoughts because it's a what's well, a it's a morph suit and what a morph suit is is it's like a full spandex suit and it covers your face. And so I'm just cognizant of uh, the appearance of things and wanting to make sure. And so I was like, is this a bad thing? Is wearing an all black spandex with my face covered in black spandex, is that like a, could that be interpreted as a riff on like a blackface type costume? And I feel like shadows don't have, they're pretty uniform. They're pretty uh Non-ethnic in general, everybody has a shadow. They all look the same. So I was thinking about that. That was like kind of like my check in my mind. I was like, should I go? Should I just like never put the hood all the way up, uh, like cover? My own? I may I may just go. I don't really want that on my like. Well, of all the times that I've been used to having my face covered, it has been during the global pandemic. But it did cross my mind. You know, should 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 this be something that I'm cognizant of? But. May, I mean, I listen, I just, this is awesome. I, I think it's
2: important. It's important I, to think I about think those it,
0: things. I, do I don't want to get Justin trudeau
2: Like, <laughs> I do think that it is a fair and honorable question to ask.
0: Yeah, I'd rather be, I'd rather go above and beyond and consider it. Now, maybe it's worth if I, if I consider it and then it's a bad idea and I did it anyways. I don't know. I, I don't know. I just cognizant. But that's, you know, I think that's a great lead into what we're talking about today, (laughs) too, because because what we're talking about is perfectionism and the influence that it has on ourselves, our our culture, our working environments, and the desire and the feeling that we always have to be exactly perfect. And so while I believe that it's considerate to think about those things, uh, to some extent, Considerations like that, you want to you want to strive towards perfection. There, we want to be really good about it. But Lindsay, in talking about perfectionism in general, can you set some guidelines and a framework for just what perfectionism is?
2: We always key up almost every episode with me offering some sort of clinical definition along the way. And so the definition of perfectionism is the irrational desire to achieve along with being overly critical of oneself and others. So it's this focus on achievement uh, to a level that may or may not be realistic and intense, critical analysis of yourself and other people.
0: Okay, so... It's not just wanting things to go well. It is an above and beyond. Of an almost unattainable level.
2: Well, I think that nobody is perfect. That that is. Well, Michael just seemed offended by me saying that. Um, He is perfect. The rest of humanity. uh, Part of what makes us human is that we are not perfect. Only Jesus was. Um, and so it is something, it's good for us to strive towards, uh, achieving and doing well, but it is probably unrealistic of us being perfect and without flaw.
0: So how does this tangibly impact an individual?
1: Well, I've, I, the reason we're actually talking about it today, um, is because i I was at recently at a college speaking on a panel on mental health and got to talking to some students and and this was the number one topic that came up this desire to have your life all together to be perfect to um some of that uh is expressed in like academic pursuit so having you know 4.0 and not not making any mistakes in your grades some of that uh, manifests in the perfection of your relationships, um, especially seeking a spouse at that young adult age, like trying to find the perfect relationship and be the perfect person for that perfect relationship. Um, and then and then the other uh, that was really strong in these conversations was this desire to be perfect in your relationship with Christ, in your spirituality and your in your faith tradition. and And so I think that in some ways, um, this this yearning for perfection, is driven out of our culture, but then it permeates all sort of facets of our life. And Mm. sometimes I think we're, sometimes we're sort of self-aware of it. We know that we're trying to like, we're, we're overachieving or we're really working too hard to try to achieve something um, or to make it perfect. But, but then I think it's more the more subtle perfectionism that lives in us um, Mm -hmm. that, that kind of undermines having a fulfilling life.
0: I, I did some research on this topic coming into our podcast. And one of the articles I read broke down perfectionism into three kind of main camps. Not that it is only encompassed by these three camps. Uh, Lindsay, were you going to get to this? Is that.
2: Keep going. Go for it, Evan.
0: Yeah, I'm going to do it. Uh, Okay. So (laughs) uh, they had it broken into uh, self-oriented, others oriented, and then socially prescribed perfectionism Mm. those were the three categories so once again that was self-oriented others oriented or other oriented and then socially prescribed uh, perfectionism so Lindsay, help me out here with what those actually mean
2: uh self-oriented perfectionism is the irrational desire for you yourself to be perfect Others oriented perfectionism is placing unrealistic standards on other people. And then socially prescribed perfectionism is perceiving excessive expectations from others. So, perceiving that others have uh, these expectations ab- about you. Like your you. parents.
1: Maybe mm-hmm. you, you think that's your a parents- great example. Parents have these expectations on you that they may or may not have, mm-hmm. um, but you perceive them as expectations that require you to be perfect.
2: Mm-hmm. They'll be disappointed in me if I don't get straight A's on this. Um, if I'm and then, not an
1: engineer, my dad's gonna, you know, disown me.
2: And and we can say it goes from that part of the spectrum all um, of. Schoolwork, we often talk about perfectionism when it comes around schoolwork or uh-huh. employment, but it can go as far as uh, my parents will uh, not love me anymore if I tell them I'm pregnant um, or things like that. If that any if, I,
1: if I'm gay, I don't look at the standard mm-hmm. that my parents have set for me. Um...
2: Yeah, this perceived expectation or standard that we're supposed to have. So I'm
0: not, that already sounds exhausting. Uh, and so you can tell, because I'm it is not, I'm probably <laughs> not a per, much of a perfectionist. It, I wouldn't identify as that, but as you talk about it, I'm thinking about all the areas and times in my life where I am. And I see myself in this, in all three categories. And I am, mm-hmm. uh, which you have this, both of you have this unfortunate effect on me where I uh, end up holding up a mirror to myself, my personality and my past and going, oh boy, more stuff to unpack.
1: Here we go. That's why I was psychology major, because it was just like, oh, I could just look at myself the whole time and go, wow, that's why you're such a mess. This makes sense now. Mm. Huh.
2: What, I, what I love is that we always talk about mess as a bad thing like we're such a mess. This is terrible. What if messy is okay? What I'm if super, we embrace I'm Super cool with that.
1: That messy. is what my children say to me all the time that their room is a
2: mess, but it's okay. Oh my goodness. Structured but chaos. messy messy <laughs> as in the reality is perfect. we
1: are messy. There is not there's not a, that that humans by virtue of being alive and being connected to other humans means that our, our, our lives are going to be fragmented. They're going to be messy. They're going to be interconnected with other things. Our belief systems are going to be here, there, and everywhere as so we try to make sense of the world. So so you're right. I mean, mess is, mess is not only, maybe, maybe as you've taught, mess is, not, is neither good nor bad. It just mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's the reality of, of how we are as, as people living in a very complex society with lots of demands and expectations on us. And and we're just trying to make our way.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: How do we take steps to identify this in the first place? Cause many of the things we talk about, especially around mental health for me personally, I don't catch these things sneaking up on me. They kind of just like slam into me. After I feel exhausted and feel like something in my, once my coping mechanisms break, then I'm like, okay, why do I feel bad? Let me go to my feelings wheel. Let me go to my index, like move the hands on my feelings wheel clock, understand exactly what these things are and and construct How do we evaluate this in a way that can be fair to ourselves?
2: Well, why don't I throw out some common symptoms of perfectionism so we kind of know when it's happening even. Um, Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> that you can be dissatisfied with a standard of work. Others see as acceptable. You procrastinate until hundred percent sure of what to do and how to earn a high grade or to make others happy with a report. You avoid answering questions in class or in the workplace for fear of being wrong. Stop. Please stop. (laughs) (laughs) Both of your faces. I really wish that this was not just audio only. Both of your faces are like Lindsay, please. This this cannot be... uh, You can't name any more about me. Um, Let's keep going. Risk averse. You won't take any risks because of fear of what could happen. You avoid starting tasks for fear of not doing them right or doing them well. You'll, you may get very upset when your grades uh, or your performance evaluation is lower than you anticipated. You struggle to cope with mistakes. You take criticism personally. You work slowly to avoid mistakes my two co-hosts have left the room because they are personally feeling victimized by this. You fixate on neatness and appearance of work and you start over repeatedly to get it right. Is it over yet,
0: Michael? <laughs> no, it's so painful.
2: Evan, if anybody couldn't hear that clearly, Evan just yelled from the other side of the room, is it over yet? I. Hence why I started this whole thing by just saying we're all messy. And that's okay. Because (sighs) this, this feels too close to home for so many of us.
0: And to hear that as a perfectionist takes the exact same lens that you would view the world and then turns it on how you're too much of a perfectionist.
2: Mhm.
1: That's right. That's exactly <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah, you that uh it it you, and so I guess I might say per, perfectionism is not necessarily bad. It 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 when be, I think like any any of our tendencies uh but when it becomes debilitating, when it prevents you from having meaningful relationships or getting work done on time or or enjoying life. Then that's when these kinds of characteristics become problems. When it, when it, when you look in the mirror and all you see are your flaws and you can't see anything good in you, that's when perfection has taken over your life in a way that's that that could be damaging and mm-hmm. hurtful.
2: I'm gonna push back a moment on that. And that is not something I normally do with that's you, Michael. It. And we've been doing this a long time now that I'm finally pulling it. Pulling out uh all the stops and saying, okay, I'm gonna fight back a little bit. Um that I don't know if perfectionism, I don't know if I believe that perfectionism is a good thing. I think striving to do well may be a positive way, but perfectionism I think will all almost always set us up for disappointment. Because I don't know if it's actually achievable. Mm-hmm.
1: That's true. That's true. I think, I guess you, I suppose how we talk about it is, is, is really important. I mean, I think, I think that, the, I guess that what I was thinking is the reality is, um, let me just be truthful. It lives in me. I, a part of, I, I strive to have everything together and, and, and to achieve things, um, and to get things done. And it's just part of my character. It's part of who I am. And I, I can't really avoid it. What I need to do is learn how to, to, um, live with it in a way that it's, that it's, it's healthy. It's a healthy push to get things done. Um, and I think it's always, it's always a dance, you know, like mm. it's for me, it's always a dance between doing well and, and, and achieving, and also being still and 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 enjoying life, and I think that I guess in that sense is what I what I don't want to say is that that push, that internal drive to be perfect, to, to 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 work really hard to achieve, is not necessarily in of itself bad, um, because I don't want to label that part of myself bad.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But but I also want to realize that 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 has a tendency to corrupt life where I can't enjoy it. Where I, can't Ooh, I love the way any. you said that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Has a tendency to corrupt life. I think that, spe- that speaks to me in the way that you phrase that.
2: Yeah. And I'm, I'm grateful for you owning that Michael. Cause I think it gives more of a space for, you know, so many of us to say like me too. I, uh, I, I think that, it is something that I have wrestled with for a long time. I think people that, especially when you go to school for an eternity, um, there gets instilled in this, this in you that while you naturally enjoyed continuing to learn and do well, then there's almost this pushback of you can do better and even better and even more. hmm
1: and you, and you start to begin to believe that your worth is, is based on your achievement, mm-hmm. you know, and that, so that somehow but, that, that grade you get is reflective of who you are.
2: There is a great quote from Brene Brown, who we all know and love. Um, we don't know her personally. We all wish we She's knew her personally. She's my
1: animal though, or I don't know what you... <sighs> She's more than welcome to come on the podcast.
2: Yeah. (laughs) She's more than welcome. She wants to show up. Um, I love her, especially because she's a social worker, and I'm glad that we have more social workers in the world. Uh, But in her book, Daring Greatly, she says this about perfectionism perfectionism is not self improvement, perfectionism is at its core about trying to earn approval. Most perfectionists grew up being praised for achievement and performance. Grades, manners, rule following people-pleasing, appearance, sports. Somewhere along the way, they adopted this dangerous and debilitating belief system. I am what I accomplish and how well I accomplish it. Please perform perfect. That's from our book, Daring Greatly. That really resonates with me.
0: So what is it developmentally about us that balances the desire to do well without apparently towing this line of perfectionism? I think of growing up and needing to be taught how to do things. And when you're taught how to do something by a coach, a parent, a teacher, you want to instill the desire to do it right. And you want to learn discipline because discipline is something that is taught and it's caught and it's it's kind of the underwriting of how we view work and creation and stewardship right And so it seems like we kind of have to get pushed into that stressful perfectionist zone sometimes in order to learn how to do things well. Uh, I think of when I was growing up I was learning how to paint my that was a it was a teenager and my dad was like has phrases like do it right the first time like don't
2: are we talking paint walls or like paint a canvas
0: yeah no artistic painting i have no interest in uh, <laughs> this is completely <laughs> okay, functional i was like... tr-
1: i am glad you asked because i was trying to envision you painting like you know
2: bob ross style bob <laughs> none,
1: ross, of, you, like the none trees. of you can
0: imagine me doing that because <laughs> yeah, it, that
1: just...
2: <laughs> yeah. That, that's where your analogy was breaking down for michael yeah, very very <laughs> clearly
0: don't have the patience for that <laughs> uh, To develop that skill set. Very much appreciate people that do, not me. I was painting. So he said, you're going to, you need to learn how to paint. So you're not going to, we're not going to use a roller because you're going to practice learning how to paint with a brush. Because if you can learn the patience and the technique of painting with a brush, even on a blank wall, that will develop the skill set that then you can, you could continue on. And so I had to paint a closet. And he said, you're going to have to learn how to paint in this closet where nobody's going to look at it before I let you paint in the house where everyone can get to see it. And so I painted the closet and he said, you just tell me when you're done. Tell me when it's good enough. Tell me when you're done. So I was like, I'll just paint the closet, you know, whatever. I just paint it, whatever. And then I was like, okay, I'm done. And he comes and he looks at it and he goes, a good start go ahead and paint it again we'll do a second coat so you can you know me and obviously teenage me I was like (laughs) you know I'm huffing so I really quickly just slap on a second coat I said all right great he comes back and he goes it's not quite it keep practicing keep going use a lamp to take a to this closet and see the lines and these are the things in the brush that you need to get right to do the job right i ended up painting the closet four times
2: <laughs> the way the story was going that's fewer times than i would have guessed
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. you're a quicker learner <laughs> than i thought well turns out we talked about this when i was you know much further into adulthood and we always laugh about painting the closet and stuff like that and he goes yeah, I mean it was it was probably good enough after that second coat, but I felt like it was important for you to learn.
1: <laughs> I felt like it was
0: important for you to learn to be the you know detail oriented and things like that. I appreciate that lesson. Obviously not as appreciative in the moment, but I appreciate that lesson. Um, because learning the discipline to pay attention to the details, those kind of things. That is a much harder hill to climb than walking down perfectionism, or so I thought. But depending on our mindset, it becomes much more challenging to balance the two. So back to my original question, which was, if we say that perfectionism has all these dangers, obviously sloth and laziness has its dangers in itself, and the opposite of not being lazy or slothful is not perfectionism. Mm -hmm. There's a very wide middle ground. How do we teach and develop and talk about doing things well and with excellence while at the same time, keeping in mind the dangers of perfectionism?
2: I think one of the key components that I have found working with people over the years is honoring people's, Ability levels, and even this is going to—I reference this episode all the time. Our conversation about capacity—that somebody that may struggle with um, some dyslexia or some form of learning disability—it uh, is a—it is an extra battle. To get straight A's in school, because they are having to work s- so much harder over that. Um, that perfection uh, is not a fair term. In that instance, it is uh, what what is challenging. Uh, and showing that you are working at something and aren't being lazy based on your ability level. I think that's uh, that's important for us to be kind to ourselves and to others about that. And uh, capacity level. I work with a lot of women in their 20s and 30s uh, who see everything on Pinterest and then believe that their house Uh, has to have everything in the exact right place, um, and that they need to have all their makeup exactly on correctly, um, and everything needs to be fully put together, and uh, they have to have made some dinner from scratch every night, um, and all of these kind of standards that we have placed upon ourselves. And I often ask the question of, they say, if I'm not doing it all at all the same time, then I'm failing. And I said, well, what is enough? Or what's your capacity level today? What can you handle? And they often push back and they're like, well, that's not important. What I can handle or how much time I have today. I won't look like I had it all together.
1: Mm -hmm. The, the, uh, the idol, the false idol of having your life all together, especially I think in like good Christian community, like mm-hmm. there's this drive to have the appearance that everything is just together. It's what people talk about. They talk about hypocrisy in the church Um, is that church filled with, a, I have an uncle who always says that church is just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. It's, the world is filled everywhere you go. There's not a place that you can escape people filled with, with hypocrisy because I think part of our, part of our nature sometimes is to present things differently than they really are. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes aspirationally, there are places where you become vulnerable and have real honest, vulnerable, intimate relationships in your life that aren't filled with hypocrisy. But if you're just walking through the store, you're going to, you're going to engage yourself with someone who's a quote unquote hypocrite. If you go to church, you're going to, you're going to do that. The thing that I think as you were talking to the, that I hear that I hear a lot, especially among the young adults that I've worked with, is is that it's not just about having good grades or working really hard to paint your closet correctly. Mm-hmm. It's it, it What's really corrosive is when you start to believe that your 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 being, your worth, wildness as a person your life, your worthiness, is based on how well you do something. And I think that stems so much from um, a capitalistic society, where your value in society is how much money you make and how much responsibility you have. And then, and then if you grow up in, the, in a Christian environment, um, the church is really good about teaching this, this idea of perfectionism that you know you just gotta get your life in order. You just gotta do these prescripted things. And once you have all of that, then you'll find contentment, you know, and you'll find and that that God's love for you is somehow based on the things you do, not on who you are. And that so when you when you grow up in a society that bases your value on how much money you have or how many things you have or how much power you have or that and then you you also live in a subculture of Christian uh, culture that says that God's love for you is based on how well you do, and not who you are. Um, then you end up being perfectly shaped to live a, a, a life of perfectionism, where you're never enough. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can ever do that's ever going to live up to this idol that you've made of yourself um, or society has made of you that you keep chasing out.
0: Okay, then I think it's time. We have to unpack the end-all, be-all scripture verse that gets quoted around perfection. And the church, and how we just it's one of the ones that just gets slung around a lot, right? And I'm talking about Matthew 5. I've oh got it pulled up here. Matthew 5.48. So I'm gonna read Matthew 5.48 for us and frame it a little bit because this is at its face value a very challenging statement. Matthew 5.48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That is the phrase. That is written. And then somebody decided that 48th verse is going to be just that statement. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's Jesus Christ himself talking in the Sermon of the Mount. And so he does the Sermon of the Mount. He talks about the Beatitudes at the beginning. He goes through all these things. It's like his longest teaching. It's the one that doesn't have really any parables. So there's no kind of story that comes along with this. No talking about the kingdom of God and the attitudes and trying to find ourselves in this story. It's not meant to teach a lesson. It's a direct teaching. And at the end of all of these things that he says in Matthew five in verse 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What are we supposed to do with that in connection with what we're talking about with perfectionism? Cause it seems to me at face value that verse is telling you to be a perfectionist.
1: Yes. But take into clay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wrap a- the podcast. Yes. And the end, the end of episode. <laughs> uh, yes. And I think part of the, maybe part of the reframing of, of, of this particular passage in this verse is, is putting it into some context too. Um, if you look at, if you look at this series of teachings, very much they are teachings about caring for others, about loving yourself and loving others, love your enemies. Um, this, this, this idea of sort of flipping the script, so to speak, because actually, what's, what I think what's really interesting to me about the story of Jesus is um, it's situated in, in sort of th- the height of prescriptive order of religion. So, so the, the Jewish faith, our, our, our faith, um, has this very um, detailed list of things to do. To be right with god and that there's this set of rules and standards and practices uh that tell us a very prescribed understanding about what it means because our nature is all right god says to to love your neighbor as yourself well then what we're going to do is define that because we need to make sense of it so we're going to say well all right, well who's the neighbor and who's the self and and who's the enemy? And, and so we start to prescribe things and we write this detailed. And so in the middle of this tradition of, of prescribing relationship with God, Jesus comes into the play and sort of turns everything around. Um, it's so much it's no longer about the rules and the Sabbath as it is as uh, much about caring for other people. Um, it's, it's no longer that you shouldn't eat with this kind of person or talk to this kind of person It's about, you're supposed to be with them. And so there's this, then this verse, that says you to be perfect, which sort of stands this perfectness is to do all these things you weren't supposed to do before, to love your enemy, to be with people you shouldn't be with. Um, and so the, the story, of Jesus, for me, is, is kind of a liberating force in the idea of perfectionism. So one could say, uh, one one way to to kind of look at this is, uh, from our language today, is that we were, the Hebraic tradition, the Jewish tradition had created, uh, which is, our, I'm not being judgmental of it, is part of our tradition too, is, is this intricate system describing how someone is loved by God. Jesus sits down in the middle of that and says, forget all this. Well, don't forget all of it. But really, the most important thing is love yourself, love your creator, and love your neighbor and And then out from that comes Jesus teaching, which to me is liberating as a perfectionist because that the idea then is that our job in perfection is to learn how to love and to love love well. Does that make it clear? <laughs>
2: Well, it's one of those verses where it says be, the be perfect part of it feels like, uh, almost a demand be perfect. That is how it is often preached. And it's one of those scriptures that I don't think the tone that we read it in often is the tone that's intended, uh, that it's, to me, I almost want to read it as uh, move towards being perfect or work on this, uh, not as much as a value statement of your failure if you're not there.
0: So the theological concept that we're addressing is, correct me if I'm wrong, the concept of Christian perfection. Mm-hmm. It's common among pretty much every theology that you'll find yourself in, in different denominations of Christianity. And there are some differences in how different traditions approach this idea of Christian perfection, right?
2: Yes. All right. <laughs> so you couldn't see our nodding on the audio. They, they are Sorry, They're everybody. Nodding. We were waiting for Evan to keep going and he was waiting for a verbal. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
0: So, us being in the Methodist tradition, how would you then sum up that definition of Christian perfection from a Wesleyan perspective? Methodist well, quiz
1: I think, gotcha. I think that's so much of, and and I full full disclosure. I think it's fair to say that John Wesley embodied perfectionism. He and, and 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 openly battled with it. I think yes,
2: the trait uh, of perfectionism. And he yeah. was so hard on himself.
1: He was. I mean it was a fascinating and maybe that's why I resonate with him well uh in some respects is that that uh sometimes I allow rules and, and my desire to to get things right to inhibit my ability to live which I think is is part of the story of John Wesley and his evolving self that we get to watch through history.
2: I mean, and he I- had a, he had a journal that he would journal everything that he did that he felt was not perfect. I mean, to the point that he would say four seventeen p.m. I thought this about somebody and that was unkind. What in the world? Where? I mean, <laughs> he just totally tore apart uh every single thought that wasn't perfect in every way uh side story my favorite halloween party in seminary was when uh somebody came well a group came as the wesleyan quadrilateral because people were super nerdy um scripture tradition reason experience how people uh in the methodist tradition uh Understand theology, but somebody else came as John Wesley and had a giant journal around their neck. And anytime something happened at the party, or they had a thought, they literally took their pen out and wrote it in their journal.
0: Oh my gosh! Okay, so also <laughs> sorry too, for, for, <laughs> so. for people. It's amazing for people who uh, didn't grow up in the Methodist Church or don't know why. Why did we care about what this guy John Wesley? thought anyways. The well, short version.
1: So, so he, he he is the 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 father of our tradition, uh Methodist tradition. Um Anglican priest um who had a pretty interestingly enough had this pretty profound experience here in Georgia where we're based um uh in St. Simon's Island uh in in and he's and in, in, in through his evolution as a person and understanding of faith, this idea of of grace that lives in him and this and he talks about and specifically with regard to what we're talking about today, this idea of sanctifying grace. You might hear sanctifying. There's Wesley talks about three forms of grace: provenient grace. This is the grace that extends to us before we even recognize God's work in our life. Um, it's what draws us into relationship. Justifying grace is that grace which extends to us, to overcomes the the, the mistakes we've made in life that justify us. Um, that God grants us grace in our life. That's a lot of times when people talk about grace, it's it's this idea of justifying grace. And then the third is this sanctifying grace that Wesley talks about, which which is a perfectionism of love. So this this pursuit of loving neighbor, loving God, and loving self completely. Um, it's it's habitually filled with the love of god and neighbor and having the mind of christ and walking as christ walked and so there is this belief that as 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 humans as as created images of god that we are we are have this ability to to follow god closely and be drawn closer and closer in this idea of love for neighbor love for god and love for self um and so that's what sort of moves us um, in our life and our faith journey, which I think can easily, again, you know, I think like all things that are good can also be used to create, you know, anxiety or this this rule of law and rule of faith that becomes perfectionism and becomes debilitating. So I think I think there is that possibility in our tradition to understand it that way. But I don't think that's the intent that John, uh, that Wesley was really looking for, for us.
0: John, you're on a first name basis with John. I get it. It's <laughs>
1: Johnny. Johnny, he prefers Johnny, but.
0: And it's that interpretation of Christian perfection that I think for me was really key to feel like I could be a Christian. That the, the task was, not just some impossible standard that was set before us and that God was there looking down and laughing at me while I kind of tried to... You guys ever seen the movie Homeward Bound?
2: Oh man, I haven't oh. thought about that movie in so long.
0: Spoiler alert for a very old movie. Uh, at the
2: <laughs> you have the, to, what? What's the year breakdown of how many years a movie's been out? This, this, like this when you no longer need to give a spoiler alert?
0: Yeah, what's the statute of limitations on a spoiler what's, what's this for This movie
2: in like ninety two.
0: I don't know, but I'm gonna check because if you nailed it in one, um, I. <laughs> There's a lot more Homeward Bound. If if way.
2: I win, th- are you going to, like, send a box of cookies over here or something?
0: 93. Oh, you were so oh, close. Oh,
2: <sighs> Sorry. Clearly, I was trying to uh, put it into my growing up years. February
0: 3rd, 1993, though, which I think is... I think that is... You, I pretty you much won. Yeah, yeah. You, you win. Leslie wins this episode. We do need to come up with a winner every episode. Wow, that'd be great. Okay, that would really help with our perfectionist tendencies. Mm-hmm. So in the movie Homeward Bound, in the end, there, there's there's three main characters, right? There's, uh, what's the cat's name? Sassy?
2: I can't tell you any of that. Hold
0: on. What? Oh, Michael J. Fox voice Chance. There's Chance, who's like the lovable traditional dog. Uh, there is uh, Shadow, who's the older golden retriever, and then the cat's name is Sassy. It's Sassy, and Sally Fields is the voice. Anyways, they are their family has moved, and they are trying to get back to their family, and they've been lost, and they're homeward bound, right? They've they or maybe the family didn't move; they got moved somehow. Anyways, at the end, there's a mud hill that sassy can make it up because she's a she's a cat chance can make it up because he's the young pup right he's the younger dog but shadow the old wise dog cannot run up this mud hill and he just can't do it and they're talking about it and they're like shadow come on man you got this you got this and the golden retriever's like i can't make it You guys got to go on without me. And they're like, oh, Shadow. And then the family comes back and the cat, Sassy, and Chance comes back. And there's this amazing scene reunited. But the boy, who's really connected to Shadow, doesn't see Shadow coming back. And you're like, Shadow couldn't make it up the mud hill. Shadow's not going to make it home. And there's this glorious moment where Shadow comes over this field and the boy is like, shadow and he's covered in mud but he somehow made it up the mud hill maybe he just walked around maybe he took the stairs that were next to it i don't know how there i don't know the homeward bound canon of how shadow got up this mud hill but that was one of the moments of this this coming over the hill in this joyous moment in my life where i look at it And I just felt like the task was cruel. I felt like, why were we created and then expected to be perfect? And it just feels like, I feel like this old golden retriever trying to run up this mud hill to get back to the joy that is life, the joy that is my family, the joy that is living. And then there's a cruel God who just covered this hill in mud, gave me a golden retriever body and was like, just run on this treadmill and I'm going to laugh about it. And this perspective on Christian perspective and a Wesleyan perspective on it, for me, I was like, well, this actually makes sense. This feels like something that I can do. This feels like something that we're created with a soul that you would say, I have a soul, you have a soul, and everyone in the world, God is at work in their lives at all times. And our pursuit of perfection is engaging with that and allowing God into those moments. And then that is Christian perfection. It is never an attainable state but it is the definition of a process of a pursuit of God. I love that. That was profoundly shaping for me as a believer and in choosing Christianity and choosing this to believe that God is real and that he is who he says he is, as described in the scriptures. And you guys are waiting for a point. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: no. I, I love the image. I, I think you I thought think,
2: it was like you were going to say something else. To be fair, we were giving you space.
0: It is Zoom. You have to give a lot more space on Zoom too.
1: You do. There's this buffer. You got to wait and make sure you're not lagging. But and uh, I just so I think I think what you're describing is <laughs> our own human. No, no. I mean, I think the image is 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 really spot on because I do think it is easy to take our faith tradition and see it as a gauntlet as a as a tough mudder uh, where you're trying to run up folks if you don't know tough mudder it's like this comp running competition obstacle it's competition a torture race. Mud. it's a torture to yeah you're tortured tortured <laughs> i, I want to do one one day but i i don't like torture so we are full um, of
2: a lot of in really incredible visuals today
1: yeah, I I think it is possible to see our faith tradition as a in a really extensive literally lifelong beyond lifelong uh pursuit of perfectionism and trying to get all your stuff in order. And I think the story of Jesus is an attempt to get us to realign ourselves and think about it's it's more important to be with Than it is to do for. And I think that's a shift uh, in the way of our thinking as Mm -hmm. humans. And it's why it's 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 it goes against everything that we've thought is what we're supposed to be about. But the idea is that God wants us to be with, be with ourselves holy, to be settled with ourselves, to be with our neighbors, to be with our creator, and to just to be, in some ways, to be still.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: um and and we spend so much of our lives running up a hill that's not attainable that we we never sit down and see the things that are around us
0: I, it doesn't get talked about very much in the sermon of the mount because it, generally when you do like a, a, a message or you give a, a sermon or a teaching in church it's like i gotta keep it pretty concise standpoint but in earlier in the sermon on the mount jesus says that he didn't come to abolish the law. And they're like, oh, great. That's awesome. He goes, I came to fulfill the law. And they're like, wait, what? What does that even mean? So he gives a lot of time in the Sermon of the Mount framing the fact that it isn't just about the law as we have thought about it. And he reframes it. And that doesn't typically, in my opinion, when that verse gets quoted or we quote that verse to ourselves and our brains, we don't also include the part where he talks about the commandments and the law and how he came to fulfill the law and what that means in the context of capping the whole thing. Again, it's not that he's telling us to be perfect, but there's a strong chance that he's referencing what he said before that we just take it completely out of the context of the entire sermon, which is fair because the sermon on the Mount is super long.
1: It's true. That's one way to read it. You know, start off is that, you know, we're following the law, following the law. That's the obsession with, with us as, as people of,
2: we like checklists. Uh, We're right, like, yes. okay, then I know I can fulfill it. That's why people, when they're given an open-ended assignment in school, like, please give me a rubric. I need to know what exactly are you looking for? What are you grading on? I need all the details.
1: That's right. And then Jesus says, you know what? The law is the fulfillment of the law is really being with each other and caring for the poor and the and the hurt and the lonely, caring for yourself. Um and, and it it but I, I we say all this because I think what where it goes back to is, like you were saying, churches are geared towards teaching people what to do. It's a lot easier to tell someone to do this than to teach someone how to be. Mm-hmm. And it just it's it's the it's being is more nuanced. Doing is prescriptive. And so we'll say, for example, um, you should you should go you should read your Bible every day for a certain amount of time. What they're what they're attempting to do is they want you to be with God every day in some intentional way. But what we do is think that oh, in order to be with God every day, I need to read my Bible for thirty minutes every morning at six o'clock. Uh, and that's just that's the flip that we do sort of internally. And then what's really corruptive is is that we can't keep that up and we miss it. And then when we miss it and we get out of sync and we're not doing it, then we feel shame that we're not good. Um, We're not good enough. God doesn't love me because I haven't done this. And so we get in this perpetual cycle of attempting to live up to us, to this standard that's not attainable. And then we fail. And then, and then we look at ourselves in the mirror and say, we're, God doesn't love us. And so you create that really destructive cycle. And I think that's what we end up seeing. We embody as adults Mm -hmm. then that we just never, we have this hole that we're never good enough to fill.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So I see this in myself. I recognize it. Rubber meets the road time. I'm recognizing that maybe some of the way that I'm feeling or the things that I'm experiencing are from the challenges of perfectionism or perfectionist tendencies, In the moment, when I'm feeling it, what should I do?
2: When you're feeling your perfectionist tendency?
0: Yeah, I'm frustrated and I've I've stared at something for 20 minutes or I've refused to start something because I don't know how to do it well. And so I'm frozen up and then the light bulb goes off. Okay, I might be leaning towards some perfectionism here. What can I actually do to pull myself out of that? How can I cope with it?
2: I think one of the key questions to ask yourself is what is my biggest fear Mm. right now? Because I think fear is partly what paralyzes us in that moment. Fear of not being good enough, uh, fear of failure, uh, fear of people judging us. Uh, I think... Asking ourselves what we're fearing in that moment is a great place to start. Because uh, then, as you hear me say all the time, all the time, we have to name where we're at. We need to sit in our feelings and figure out what's going on. And then when you have this perfectionist nature, there has to be a conversation f- with yourself of what is enough. Mm. Not what's perfect. What is enough? What hits this kind of lower threshold of everything not fully being, um, overachieving everything, just what's enough and how can we create enough levels, uh, enoughness kind of across the board in our lives Mm -hmm. that almost in some ways, what is a baseline for us Mm that's more realistic. If we have more time and capacity, we can try to go above and beyond that. But we have to recognize that that's not what gives us value. This thing was enough. Right there.
0: It's good. What do we do then? When we push our perfectionist expectations onto others? I think a lot of us and a lot of our listeners are in Positions of authority, leadership, um, steward, employees, volunteers, that kind of stuff. How do we manage that?
2: A key question is, is this my value or is it theirs? Because we all the time get upset when other people don't do things certain ways, don't believe certain things. um, They haven't done it to the standard that we might have done it at. Uh, Is is that a spoken value or goal or is that we share or is this my own internal value that I am placing on them? Mm
1: -hmm. Mm. I think in both, if I could be a little bit more um, nuanced, um, I think I go back to this idea of relationship. I think relationships are what, really helps us find um, the sort of healing that we need in our lives that fills some of that hole. And so, and, and, vulnerability again, like being able to talk about it. So, so if I, what, what we know is that when someone is uh, sort of sharing perfectionist idea, like if I'm a parent and I'm, and I'm pushing my children to be perfect in their grades that I, we know that, that that drive uh, to to make them perfect is stemming from my own desire to be perfect, perfect parent, or or my own missed opportunities to have perfect grades. Mm-hmm. Um, it stems out of our own self, right? So I think the first thing to do, I think, like Lindsay said, is identify where is this coming from. Like, what is the source of this drive, this feel that I have, and sort of identify what what is it I'm trying to do here um, for myself. Because because what we're doing externally is really about what's happening internally. Uh, and then if I'm dealing with something that that I know is a source of of pressure for me, is I think to talk about it, to shine a light on it. That's like one of the most powerful things we can do I- I within our own being is, is to be able to talk about the things we struggle with. Because in talking about that, we join with other people who who struggle with the same things and we take... The power away from it. The power of our struggles is the secret. you know so if 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 I'm struggling with uh, with body image issues, and it's a secret, it's the secret that corrodes us. It's not the struggle with body image issues. When we're able to talk about it with other people, we're able to make sense of our body and come to come to appreciate who we are. But if we keep it a secret and we internally talk about how we're not good enough, then that's where it becomes really corruptive. And 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 then we end up further and further isolated from other people. But the amazing thing is, is if we get into a group of other people who have the same or similar kinds of problems of perfectionists when it comes to our body image issues, then we find out, one, we're not alone. That it's not a secret. That there are other people who struggle with this. I'm not, it's not just about me. Um, and then because we're in relationship with other people, we find, meaningful fulfillment outside of our own struggles. Hmm. And so I think, I I guess, I guess what I would say as a, if, if I were a leader uh, of children or uh, if as a family leader or as a church leader is how can I create space for more authentic relationships and vulnerability and how can I model that? How Mm -hmm. can I talk about my own struggles with perfectionism in a meaningful way where our children and where our friends can also talk about their struggles. Mm
0: -hmm. And there has to be a distinction, right. Between like a safety issue and a desire for safety and perfection and like a aspirational perfection. Cause if it comes to like physical safety, I would love, love, love for the people who time and make my traffic lights in my city to I would love for them to be perfect because I would love to not have that mess up. Or you know if you have something safety oriented at work where somebody could be significantly harmed, it does seem like even in that there's a way to not be a perf- to to do something with the required level of excellence without having to be a perfectionist. But I, I do think there's probably some kind of distinction between like something elective or relationship and like a task that requires extreme precision.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've talked about this, Evan, uh, and I. I don't know if we talked about it in the podcast, but I, I struggle with body image issues as a, as a kid, especially. Um, you know, I, my my family called me. Uh, some of my family members would call me thousand pounder" as a kid, and because
0: he could now he can lift a thousand. Now
1: pounds. I lift a thousand pounds. No, it and, and so when it comes to body image issues, obviously. There's a physical necessity for you to take care of your body, right? So eating right, exercising, doing things that are that are healthy for your body—that's a baseline. That's that's those are good pursuits. Those are good things. Um, but and it's even it and it's even okay to be aspirational about being able to do new things. Like I want to learn how to play basketball, or I want to be in a better state. I want to run a tough mutter, so I want to push myself to be able to do that. Wow. But then it becomes corrosive when you do those things and you still look in the mirror and you still hear a thousand pounder mm-hmm. and no matter what you do and no matter how healthy you are, you can't fill the void that's inside of you. That says that you, you are ugly mm-hmm. or you're fat or you're skinny or you're not strong enough. Like whatever those words are that you tell yourself, I think, I think that's a good kind of understanding that there are things that are healthy and that we should do. And even in aspirational health, but at the same time, if if the mm. internal dialogue is saying you're not good enough, that's a totally different kind of scenario.
0: Yeah, I love the words you use there, corrosion. The, that Something that could be good in another context when applied in the wrong place over time creates corrosion. So it, it's not necessarily that it is bad. It's not that the other thing is bad. It's just when it's not in the right place and in contact with the right things, it creates corrosion over time, sometimes very quickly but sometimes it just takes years and that we, uh, we just kind of allow things to corrode because we don't pay attention to them and we allow them to have that influence. Lindsay, what are you thinking?
2: Oh, I'm just soaking it all in. I think that what you're saying is a really helpful way to think about it.
0: So as we kind of tie up the last part of our socially oriented perfectionism, what do we do when we encounter pressure that we feel is from society to be perfect? It's, it's, it's not necessarily intrinsic. It's not pressure that we're applying on others, but when we feel that societal pressure, are the coping mechanisms the same or is there a different way that we can kind of think and address that level?
2: Again, I think it comes back to the question of where is this coming? Where is this belief and perception coming from? hmm that who told me this? And a lot of times it's, there's not a, we can't name who told me this. (laughs) And that right there should tell us everything is that there's this elusive, uh, they, that, that often exists that, uh, they told me this. And when you really start asking, well, where did I get that idea from? You start realizing that you generated it um, instead of somebody else often actually telling you that.
0: It seems like the vulnerability and accountability to be able to open up about that would be another good mechanism. Because like we often talk about, an external perspective of somebody that's trustworthy is of immense value value for our mental and spiritual well-being
2: yeah i mean i just i don't know i think i'm still just even sitting this in my own life that i have to ask myself a lot of times in uh running my own private practice uh other jobs that i've had uh Having this fear, like they're not going to think that I'm doing enough,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: and who's they? Uh, and and I've realized there is no real they that I can name. It's these elusive people that I don't even quite know who they are, and it's mostly me being my own thoughts being personified <laughs> yeah. on this elusive they. Who
1: are they? Are they here now? Are they watching us? Are they on the mm-hmm. Zoom call? <laughs> For me, it, the they is me. I mean, it's, it's, it's about me letting myself down and in, in my own internal drive to, again, to accomplish um, whatever goal it is I've set out and to do it the absolute best. Not the best that I can do, but just the best. Um, you know. And I think, I think that is the healthy reframe is to say, what's the best I can do? Not the what's the best. Uh, because the best is what's elusive and non-realistic. Um, I I totally get that.
2: I Go wonder ahead, if sorry. even the question is what's the best I can do
1: in now, this now
2: in this moment with
1: everything that's happening.
2: Right, and yeah. and I I saw you totally picking yeah. up on that as soon as I was yeah. like, I want to add more to that sentence because yeah. the best I can do pre-March, uh, pre-pandemic starting was a lot more than I can do right now. Um, so I could easily beat myself up and going, I'm not doing my best. I am doing my best considering that I'm using more energy every single day to even just navigate leaving the house and how each choice I make, the risk level that's required. It's
1: exhausting. Absolutely. It's exhausting. Absolutely.
0: I, I think for me, it is that inverted bell curve of like tons of things that I don't start <laughs> things in the trough that like I just kind of don't touch because they seem too big. And then this back end of things that I've already started. So I'm battling perfectionism I just can't I can't level it out and it's definitely more weighted to the things I don't touch because they feel too big like I do I don't do well with problems that don't have kind of tangible solutions but once I get into something I am like obsessive about it
2: one of my favorite examples that I've heard about perfectionism uh comes back to uh a book that I had to read in preaching class um that is called Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, and I was really
0: hoping the name of the author was Bird.
2: <laughs> bird no. by
0: Bird by Bird.
2: Um, and I will say, slight profanity warning here of what she says is, I know, wild and crazy. Um, is that she often is like, you're not going to get all your writing together from the very beginning. This is me paraphrasing. You're not going to get your writing together from the very beginning. What you need to do is put your butt in your seat and write a shitty first draft.
1: Folks, we just went PG.
2: Ladies Sorry, and gentlemen, everybody. the
0: first cuss on the podcast.
2: Sorry, I gave a disclaimer.
0: Is No, it's just, it's just, it, a, it's, it's, I can't think I never of- thought it would be you.
1: I, I, exactly. <laughs> that that.
2: Part of what that really it's resonates. A it's a quote. Yeah. Part of what really resonates about that is that it's like, if you're not going to have it all together, your first draft draft, you write, especially in a sermon. Yeah. I just like word vomit on the page when I'm mm-hmm. writing a sermon and just dump stuff out there. And I tell myself it doesn't have to be all together from the beginning. And if I don't know where to start, I follow her advice, read a shitty first draft, and then can start, have something on paper and can start tearing it apart. Um, I, I think that's... has got
0: to get
1: started. That's very brilliant, helpful
2: I learning love moment it.
1: right there. I love her it.
2: Profanity was helpful in her quote, because I think that it's, we laugh, but it so resonates with us. Just yeah. start it. It might be terrible. Start somewhere, and then you can revise because Because it's better to start
0: yeah it in itself breaks you out of the societal pressure of norm too especially in Mm -hmm. the context of like writing a like sermon and that kind of stuff it's like it's like that that love that type of language you wouldn't associate with that type of activity but it (laughs) kind of cracks the egg that is that kind of writer's block not that you Mm -hmm. Well, and
1: if I will say too, in my own personal experience, it is, it is my most profound experiences with, with God, with myself and with others has been in that liminal space, that space between getting that first draft, that W- something on paper, and this rigorous exercise to try to have everything perfect. Like it's the it's mm-hmm. the tearing, it's the tension that that releases between those two. Where I really have the most profound moments uh, of of creativity, of peacefulness, of of connection with others is in that space where you mm. just get it out there, and then you and you and you step away from the hill, the muddy hill, for a moment just to get something done and be, be satisfied with that. Uh, so I think, this, I think it's really good advice. Good help. And you're image. showing
0: grace to yourself. You're showing grace to others in the process and you're showing grace to the process and your, and your place in it. And it's, there's a mindfulness there. I am wrapping up listening to a podcast on parables Uh, and they talk about the definition of the mystery of God and the way that it's defined in English is not necessarily the same as it's defined in like the actual word in scripture because the word in scripture, which I don't remember and won't try and say, is actually the moment that you start to get it. Like that's the way that that's supposed to be translated. It's not just mystery in ambiguity. It is the moment that things start to click. And that's the way that it's supposed to be referenced. And I was like, stop
1: it. What?
0: <laughs> and it's it's almost like an aha, like a eureka, like that moment that you're talking about where grace meets our reality and, and our process and creation has got us through it, that really we get to interact and that perfectionism starts to dissolve because our expectations meet our reality. And grace is the thing that they find in the two. And I think that that's beautiful. And I pray that I can remember and live that tomorrow, let alone in the next 15 minutes of my life.
2: (laughs) You could re-listen to this podcast later and hopefully keep remembering that you're working on this.
0: Mm. Well, as we kind of wrap up, uh, I'd love any... (laughs) I almost did the bad intro again. What closing thoughts do you have as we wrap up?
2: I'm going to spend some time thinking about my enoughness this week and how I can move towards enough and away from perfection.
1: Hmm. I think that sometimes it's easier to offer grace to others than it is to offer grace to ourselves. And I also think that sometimes offering grace to others opens the door for us to offer grace to ourselves and so in that spirit i think i'm going to look for a way to celebrate someone else's enoughness that their presence or their 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 effort, their energy is enough and is appreciated and in and is fulfilling and in and, and hopes that that not only cracks the door for them to sense Uh, an awareness of being enough uh, but also it may that also be lived out in my own life as well
0: Hmm. i think i'm gonna go rewatch homeward
1: bound i i i I, i'm gonna go watch it and cry sounds like i'm gonna cry Uh, at the end
2: is it on netflix can we have a netflix party we could all chat on the side and make it happen
1: my kids would love it i bet they would love it it's got animals on it so
2: my other takeaway from the day is that I'm gonna let Evan come help paint my house.
0: Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good for it. I'm good for it. You can thank you can thank Dan for that one. You can <laughs> thank Thanks, Dan. Dan for that one. No, I'm I'm gonna think of that because that my next activity never mind, I won't talk about it. We're in a new house and there's some stains in the basement from an animal that wasn't ours. And I've been working. We all animals.
1: we all know that if there are stains in the basement from an animal, it's a cat. Because I told it's myself it's I not would a dog. Not
0: use the analogy. We're going to out working to get out the smell of cat from carpet. So I'm not going to do it. You can insert your own. Those who have ever dealt with the smells of a cat, we're in a very selective club. And it's a club of great suffering and pain and toil and enzymatic cleaners. That being said, thank you, everybody, for listening. (laughs) This is the best outro we've ever had. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Um, thanks for all your feedback and uh, all, all your comments and things that you say to uh, each of us about the podcast. It's really helpful. Thanks again to Justin who produced this episode and did the music. And once again, uh, as always, you can subscribe on any of your favorite podcast platforms and uh, it's always helpful uh, if you just drop a, a little review for us. Uh, it helps us kind of shape and get the word out about the podcast. So thank you so much. We hope that you have just a wonderful, wonderful day wherever you are in this moment. Whether you're feeling perfect or imperfect or somewhere in between, now we pray that God would encounter you with his grace in this moment. So we love you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Lindsay. And we'll see everybody next episode.